This morning we want to continue in our teaching series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, The person and work of the Holy Spirit, we've called it unquenched, uh, because the scriptures remind us that we should not quench the work of the Spirit. And so in looking at who the Spirit is and what He does gives us a numerous amount of ways to be careful not to quench the work of the Spirit. And this morning we want to talk about this idea of the Spirit's role in victorious living. That is, how do we have victory in our lives through the power of the Spirit? Uh, A couple weeks ago, our family was on vacation with my extended family in Ocean City, New Jersey. And some of my family's favorite things to do there are go on the beach and lay there for hours and hours and hours in the hot sun. And some of my favorite things to do are get in the water and go back to the air-conditioned large sectional and read. Or, because this house had extended cable and it had the NFL network, I several times over the week watched replays of the Eagles' Super Bowl victory, which was... Vacation for me over and over and over again. Um, I don't think anyone else in my family understood that. My dad, I think, said to my son, is he watching that again? Uh, And the answer was yes. Yes, in fact, I was watching it again. Why? Because I had not experienced that kind of victory as an Eagles fan ever. In fact, the last time the Eagles had ever won, my parents were nine years old. You understand that? 1960, before the Super Bowl even existed, was the last time that the Eagles were ever champions. And so, kind of the MO for being an Eagles fan, at least here in the greater Philadelphia area, is this kind of expectation of heartbreak, right? You always kind of have this over-expectation that you're better than you really are as a team, but there's also this expectation that the floor is going to fall out and things are going to come crashing down. And so if you would ever listen to sports talk radio before the Super Bowl, at the beginning of the year, you'd hear these grandiose stories of how great the Eagles are going to be, usually 15-1, and one, if not 16-0. and 0. And then by week one, by the halftime of the week one, it was how the world, hate, how God hates the Eagles and how they can never get any breaks and all these things are going to happen and Donovan McNabb throws up in the Super Bowl and so forth and so on. And so when the Super Bowl finally happened, when victory finally happened, it kind of answered this question as an Eagles fan, can we ever have victory with an unexpected yes? And so I watched that Super Bowl as often as I could that week because I knew I'd probably never be able to watch it again. Paul asks a very similar question, I think, here in the middle of Romans as we look at this idea of spirit and victory. He asks the question, can we ever have victory in our lives? And by the end of chapter 7, we think the answer is probably no, right? He says, this is Paul the Apostle, right? Holy, holy Paul, this guy who does everything right. He says, in writing to the Romans, who will save me from this body of death? And his implied answer is, no one. He says, but God intervenes. And therefore, he goes on into the beginning of chapter 8 and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, the spirit of life has set you free. This idea of victory over sin and death in a very unexpected yet grandiose way is in fact possible for us as followers of Jesus, even though we've conditioned ourselves to believe, yeah, it's possible, but really inside, it'll never happen. Right? We're 
good Eagles fans pre-Super Bowl when it comes to being Jesus' followers. So, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, we're in Romans chapter 8, one of my very favorite sections of Scripture. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Let me just read verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 24. He says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Right? Hopeless. Next verse, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might fully be met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it submit. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the realm of the flesh. But you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because the Spirit lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to our flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share also in his glory. So what Paul is suggesting here is that it is possible to experience victory in life over sin and death. Death in our life, not in our mortal bodies, as it were. It's possible to experience victory. And this idea of victory or no longer kind of being fully given to sin in our life, is what theologians have long called sanctification. You heard that word before? 
Sanctification is this idea of becoming more like God, more in his image, uh, being more and more like Jesus. And there's really two ideas that are involved here in sanctification. The first is what uh, theologians would call positional sanctification, and that is that we are declared holy because of Jesus' work on the cross uh, and the completion of it in his resurrection. It's why we're called things like saints or priests or holy people, declared righteous. And then there's also these calls like we hear in Romans chapter 8 to kind of live a new way, a different way, no longer to the flesh, but now towards God. This is what theologians might call progressive sanctification. That is the ongoing change in our lives to be more and more like the people God has created us to be. And what I would suggest to you Paul is saying here is what he has said in many other places, that in fact it is God's will, his desire, that you would be sanctified, that you would be holy, that you would be set apart for God, that you would be becoming more and more like him. Paul says, remember how he starts this all off, who can save me from this body of death? And the answer is not himself. And this is why all through chapter 8, the word spirit is littered in there constantly, isn't it? Because it is the spirit who is going to bring about this reality of sanctification or becoming more like God in our lives. And Paul suggests here and elsewhere two kind of pronounced ways in which the spirit does this. And this is true of anyone who is a believer in Jesus. The first is his power. The Spirit's power is at work in us. He says, the Spirit's power that sets us free from sin and death. And it's the Spirit's power that brings us to life. And this is where he says, that we often pray in the benediction at the end of our service, that it's the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him life, is the Spirit who is at work in you. Paul's logical conclusion then is, if he did this here, He desires to do it in you, too. Available to all believers, the power of the Spirit for victory over sin and the giving of life to those who are in Christ. And the second, uh, and maybe something that we don't give as much attention to, but is really important, is what I would call the testimony of the Spirit. Power of the Spirit, testimony of the Spirit. And that is that the Spirit is constantly testifying to us about who we actually are. And so two real powerful testimonies that the Spirit gives here uh, in Romans chapter 8 that are constantly happening in our lives. The first is this very first verse, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Paul says, the spirit of life sets you free from condemnation. So the spirit is constantly testifying these things to you. Second reality of the spirit's testimony to you is that you are a son or daughter of the Most High God and therefore a co-heir with Christ. Paul says, the spirit himself testifies this very thing to you. Two powerful testimonies of the spirit that are given to everyone who is a follower of Jesus. 
There's no condemnation. You are a son and daughter of God. Let's pause here and hopefully not get lost for too long. One of the great ways that we discern the difference between the voice of God through his spirit in our lives and other voices in our lives is through these two testimonies, right? Many of us believe we hear from God when we hear messages of guilt. And I want to suggest to you now, that's not possible. That cannot be the voice of God, because the voice of God says there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, does that mean the voice of God never tries to correct us or alter our lives? Of course not. But the way he does it is he calls us to a better way of living. Hey, you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You've access to this whole better way of living. Why not live into it? The Spirit of God does not come at you with guilt and judgment for what you've done. He comes at you calling you to something better. So, let me give you two quick examples. There are plenty of instances in my own life where sin that I have continual struggle with, pride or what, various things, when I, when I engage in it and stop for a moment, sometimes tears come right to my eyes. And the thought in my mind is not, you idiot, what a loser. The thought in my mind is, oh, I don't want to live this way. There's something better. This is the Spirit testifying to me of a better way of living. This is, why are you living like this? And then there's other, plenty of other times in my life when the first voice I hear after I do something wrong is, well, you screwed up again, right? <laughs> what a loser you are. If anyone knew the kind of dad you were, they would be horrified. Or if anyone saw you being so lazy tonight instead of serving your wife, they would really think terribly of you. That is not the voice of God. That is not the testimony of the Spirit. Testimony of the Spirit is, says to me, not you're a loser, but don't you know who you are and how you can live? It's important for us to discern these things. So this is the testimony of the Spirit to us. This is the reality of how the Spirit moves in our sanctification. These two huge and important truths, his power and his testimony that are able to drive sanctification in our lives. And I want to suggest to you, they're available to everyone who has trusted Christ in the gospel. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting here saying, well, if they're available, where are they? Right? What's going on? How come I'm not experiencing these things? And the truth is, because we have crowded the Spirit out. We quench the Spirit. We don't give Him the space to do the things He needs to do, or the control to have the access in our lives that he needs to have to experience his power and to hear and believe his testimony over us. So we ask, well, then how? How do we even begin to understand this? And Paul's pretty clear that for those who have truly believed the gospel, there is an expectation to experience life change. There's an expectation that should be internal. You should have an internal expectation to see significant change in your life from who you were to who you are. And there's also an external expectation. There's an expectation of God upon you that you would live in a new kind of way. Live up to the calling he has. Live worthy of the gospel, as Paul would say. Not in a punitive way, but living according to 
who you are and the name that you now bear in God. In fact, Paul says a pretty strong word. This is an obligation, he says. I don't like that word at all, right? But Paul's not using it because he says later, hey, this isn't about being a slave. This is about being a son or a daughter. The word obligation is not if you don't, uh uh-oh. The word is if you don't, then you really haven't understood what has happened for you. There's something missing. There's something not connecting that calls you into this deeper life for Christ, life for God. Listen, the call here is not to perfection. If it were, we'd be in huge trouble. But we cannot avoid the truth that a true and genuine desire to be made new and to experience the newness of life is the hallmark of true and genuine faith. And if it does not exist in your life, then you need to go back to the gospel and begin wrestling through it to find what is true and what you believe. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4, many ideas about what it means to not live according to darkness or according to this world, but to live according to who God has called you to be. And then at the end of this long treatise on how we live, he says, listen, do this or else you grieve the Spirit. To grieve the Spirit is to not see that we have an active role to participate in our own sanctification. That we have a role to play. That we're to be involved in living in response to who God is and what He's done. And living according to the calling that He's given us. You might say, well, Adam, all we ever hear you say is that God says, you're welcome, you're here. Why are you now telling us we've got to do things? Well, remember, there's an order to these. So what we do is we participate with the Spirit in our sanctification. Why we do it is because of who we are and what God has done. Remember the testimonies of the Spirit? First says, there's no condemnation. So Paul says, we have not given you a spirit of fear. Like this whole sanctification process, this whole living a new way, embracing new life, living according to God's way, is not out of fear lest God will strike you dead if you make a misstep. Right? It is not punitive, judgmental God. And the other thing he says is not, it's not like a slave who's being forced against his will into submission another way. Paul, through the move of the Holy Spirit, envisions sanctification as something that comes out of a desire in your heart to live a new way, not out of fear that God will judge you, but out of recognition that God has not judged you. Do you see it? We do this not to earn God's favor, but because we have embraced God's favor. Because we are sons and daughters. Now, outside of my two boys and my wife, maybe the person I love most in the world or the person, one of the people I love most in the world is my dad. I love my dad. He's an amazing man, uh, very sacrificial, very generous. And I bear his name, right? My last name is his last name. And there's something in that that calls me to want to live a certain way, to want to live in light of who he is. And something in that when he calls me, no matter how small the request or how big the request is, that inside of me I have a desire to want to do what he asks of me, to want to serve him in that way. 
Am I afraid that if I say no to my dad, he's going to like show up and beat me up? Or strike me with lightning? Or send curses down from Ephrata? <laughs> you know? No! My obedience or my life change or my orientation towards serving my dad comes out of my love and affection for my dad and the fact that I bear his name. And Paul is saying the exact same thing is true here. That our obedience is not out of fear or not because we were forced to, but because we bear God's name. We're sons and daughters of the Most High God, co-heirs with Christ. Have access to all the bountiful blessings of God. And so there should be a change in our heart that desires to want to live according to our calling. We say it like, I say it like this. I think this is helpful. We've got to get the order right in terms of sanctification or behavior, right? The first tier is what we'll call gospel understanding. You have to understand what the gospel is. If you don't understand the gospel and have embraced it in your heart, you really can't move forward. The second tier is what I call gospel identity. You have to know who you are in light of who God is. What he's called you to be. What it means to be a son and daughter. And then comes the tier of gospel behavior or sanctification as it were. But for many of us, we mess up this order and we wonder why this process is so incredibly difficult. When Rachel and I were married, it was a hot day like today. And uh, we had a, a, a wedding cake made, and the wedding cake was not going to survive the entire reception because the middle tier was, was collapsing. I don't know, through the heat or whatever. I have no idea of culinary or baking skills, what would make this happen. I just know that I saw it. And unlike the Leaning Tower of Pisa, this was going to finally collapse. And so what they had to do was remove this top part. For us, many of us, we have a pretty solid gospel understanding. We know what the gospel is, that, that uh, God created the world, that we have rebelled against God, but that God did not look down in judgment on us, but looked in grace and love. And in so doing, he sent Jesus, and Jesus entered into our mess, and that in the midst of our mess, He died a death that should have been ours and that that God received that death as a sacrifice for us and that through the resurrection, God declared victory for anyone who would be in Jesus. That's the gospel. Many of us understand and believe that. We have a solid bottom tier and we're trying to immediately go to changing behaviors and we get involved in what I call personal improvement projects. They're religious projects. Well, now, because of this, I've got to be this kind of person. So we go changing all these things, and we wonder why we really never have the kind of victory that Paul talks about here over many of the things in our life that we'd be terrified to know are true of us, or we'd be terrified for anyone else to know are true of us. And the answer is because you've skipped the middle tier. You failed to cement a true and undeniable identity in the gospel. What does it mean for it to be true of you that there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus? What does it mean to be true of you that you are a son and daughter, a co-heir with Christ? That God has welcomed you in. That the satisfaction you long for in life is achieved in your connection to your Creator. The significance and the acceptance and the security 
that we all long for and attempt to create in our own lives actually are fully available to us through Christ's work and the Spirit's power in relationship to the triune God. And when we embrace that, then this new way of living flows in our lives as acts of obedience and worship to God. So we got the what what and the why, and now we have 10, 7 minutes to talk about the how, right? The how is, how. okay, so fine. So the Spirit can do these things. I believe that. And I'm supposed to participate in my sanctification. And, okay, I believe that. And I understand what you're talking about, that we do this not to earn God's affection, but because God has embraced us, and so we embrace Him. It's a grace-oriented obedience that we're engaged in. But how? How do we? Go after this. And Paul has a singular answer to this. He says it has everything to do with your mind. You catch that here? And he's going to expound upon it just a few chapters later in Romans chapter 12, which we talk about all the time here at Hope, that the way that we are transformed is through the renewing of our minds. And Paul writes about it to the Corinthians where he says, take every thought captive to Christ and you have the mind of Christ. Paul understands that the way to engage in this is to have the right mindset. In fact, here he calls us to, quote, have the mind of the Spirit. Now, how on earth do we do that? And this is not some acquisition. This is actually setting ourselves aside so that the Spirit can have his way and have access to the control of our mind. For those of us who are given to going for behavior before anything else, imagine the Titanic on its fateful night. They spotted icebergs that showed up above the ocean. But imagine if those tips of icebergs didn't exist. The truth is that the fate of the Titanic would have been just the same, right? Because the reality for most of us is not the behavior that's happening on the outside that is visible to ourselves and everyone else. The issue is the massive superstructure underneath the ocean top that is leading to the behavior that's happening in our lives. And Paul says it's all about your mind. A battle for your mind, for control of your mind and for use of your mind to understand your heart. He says, listen, the mind given to the flesh Pursues the desires of the flesh. The flesh is just Paul's word for the self or the kind of the broken part of us that kind of pursues our own desires. The mind given to the flesh, it pursues the desires of the flesh. And he says, quite frankly, the flesh is hostile towards God. His words, not mine. And he says, in fact, the flesh, the, the, the flesh not only pursues its own desires, but it says it won't submit to God. And then he follows it up with a parenthetical statement. In fact, it can't submit to God. All the way back to the end of chapter 7 where Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? Paul says, the mind given to the flesh not only pursues the desires of the flesh, not only hostile towards God, not only can't or won't and can't submit to God, but it in fact leads to death. 
And not just future death, but continual death in our life. The brokenness of relationships, the brokenness and givenness of parts of us to, to evil and other things. This is what leads to death, the opposite of sanctification. He says, but the mind given to the Spirit leads to the desires of the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit lead to living God's way. And living God's way, he says, his words, not mine, lead to life and peace. This is what everyone is after. Life and peace. What everyone wants. True, full, joyous life and actual, honest peace. Significance, acceptance, security, life and peace. Paul says, here's how you get it. If you would have a mind given to the Spirit. So the truth of the matter, friends, then, is if we boil this whole talk down into a one-minute segment, Paul's saying it is your obligation to participate in your sanctification because your sanctification is God's will. How do you participate in your sanctification? You learn to step aside so the Spirit can do what you cannot do. You see it? Paul does not say that he has the power to do it. He says the Spirit has the power to do it. Paul does not say that he uses the power of the Spirit to do it. He says the Spirit does it for us. The reason that I and you and others are not experiencing this kind of victory and transformation is not because the Spirit lacks power. It is because we refuse to give up our power. And so then, the singular application of this talk is, what does it mean for you to make space in your life to experience the power of the Spirit and to hear and respond to His testimony in your life? This is the formula for victory. There is no things you need to read There is no steps. There is no seven steps. There is no any of these things. The answer is you must step aside. The Spirit has the capacity to do it, and He desires to do it. But you must step aside. Six things I want to suggest to you. These are not not a full list, but I think these are six unique ways that can be helpful for you and me to kind of step aside for a minute to experience the Spirit's power, to hear His testimony. These are the things that lead to victory and change. The first is, this will not be new to you if you've been here before, you must preach the gospel to yourself regularly. You must. To be able to preach the gospel to yourself, you have to know what the gospel is. If you don't know what the gospel is, that's where you start. Understanding what it is and speaking it to yourself. Find unique and creative ways. Write it down and put it on mirrors where you will see it. Tie a band around your wrist or a bracelet that when you look at it, it reminds you to speak the gospel to yourself. Friends, I have gotten to the the place of shamelessness where I say the gospel to myself out loud every morning because I need to hear it. You say, well, you like work doing this. Don't you know this stuff already? This is like your job. And the answer is, it's not about how well I intellectually know it. The truth is my heart doesn't always want to believe it. So you must say it. Soren Kierkegaard, the great philosopher, said this. He said, a failure to have an identity rooted in God 
is the sickness unto death. A failure to have an identity rooted in God is the sickness unto death. Exactly. The mind of the flesh versus the mind of the spirit. Preach the gospel yourself regularly. Second reality is what I suggested earlier. Second uh, Corinthians 10. Take every thought captive to Christ. What does this mean? The context where Paul says this to the Corinthians is a context of spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. And so what he's suggesting is the protection of your thought life actually sets you up for success and victory in the spiritual battle that we engage in all the time in this world. In fact, he goes on to say that it is a weapon, taking every thought captive to Christ, is a weapon that can, listen to this, demolish strongholds. Do you hear this? That the battle for your mind is the means by which you have victory over strongholds in your life. Now, how on earth do you take every thought captive to Christ? Paul understands, I believe, that you will not bat 100% on this, right? But the idea is learning to engage your thoughts with the gospel, especially the thoughts that seem to linger or seem to conquer your life. Start with those and bring the gospel to bear on it. And as you're bringing the gospel to bear on it, what you're doing is agreeing with the Spirit is already saying to you and opening up yourself for power. This is certainly a discipline that takes time to learn and engage with, but go for it. The third thing, engage in confession regularly. Now listen, you may not agree with me on what I'm about to say, but I do not believe in confession like the church has taught confession for a long period of time. Listen, I take the writer of Hebrews at his words that Christ was a once-for-all sacrifice. That I don't need to keep pleading for his sacrifice for me. That when it was applied to me through my faith in the gospel, it was applied to me. So I am not, as it were, confessing my sins regularly so that God will keep forgiving me, so that I can make it into heaven even though I keep being a failure. Most of us have been taught confession that way, right? It's true. And then you think thoughts of, what if I forgot something to confess? Confession is not that. Confession is a means of grace. It's a new opportunity to apply the gospel to your life. It's saying something that's already true of you, but taking time to say it so that the Spirit can have access for power and testimony in your life. And oh, by the way, the word confess is the word homologeo, which means to say the same thing as. Paul's saying when you confess, or John when he writes in 1 John, When you confess your sins, what you're saying is, I agree with what God says about this. And what God says about your sin is not just the negative stuff, it's also the positive stuff. We don't ever do that in confession, right? Confession is, oh man, I'm a failure, God. I did this again. Will you forgive me? That's not the gospel. That's not confession. Confession is, oh my gosh, I blew it again. I did. This is horrible. And in fact, I agree with Paul. Who can even save me from this? I don't see a path out of living this way. But God, through Christ, has done something amazing. And through the power of his resurrection, has emboldened me to a new kind of life. So it helped me take on this new life in desire and in pursuit. That, my friends, is confession. And when we do this full agreeing with God, what we've actually done is made space for the Spirit to move in power 
and to hear the testimony of the Spirit and agree with them. Fourth thing, meditate on the Scriptures. I love Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, where Joshua is given command of all of Israel. Moses is gone. They're about to go into the promised land. God says, you're in charge. You're the guy. And leading this group of people has never been an easy job. But God gives him one charge. He says, meditate on this book of law day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything that is written in it, so that you will not turn to the left or the right, so that you will be strong and courageous, so that you will experience the life of the land that I have promised. These four things come out of the truth of meditating on the word of God. Listen, if you're reading God's word regularly, I think that's fantastic. I think meditating on it's even better. Meditation has this idea of contemplation, of wrestling with text, of of taking the long view of certain things, of, of grappling for understanding and meaning instead of simply reading and checking off a box. If you might say, well, how how do I do this? How do I keep bringing it back? Well, I would suggest to you a couple of things. Cut down your reading to a smaller section and read it multiple times in the day rather than once. It's one way to enter into meditation. Find ways in your prayer time to pray about the things that you're reading. And understand that meditation is a lifelong process. So I've been meditating on, and I'm not like the, the Dalai Lama or anything here, but this is true. I've been meditating on Luke chapter 10 and Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8 for over 15 years in my life. Does that mean it happens every second of every day? Of course not. But these are texts that are deeply formative to me that I'm meditating on constantly. They're pulling me back to these things, a meditation. It's a critical way to make space for the Spirit. And then lastly, I said six. I'll leave the sixth one for later. The fifth one. Is be involved in community. The writer to Hebrews says that after writing about all these men of faith, men and women of faith, he says, listen, you have this great cloud of witnesses so that you can throw off the sin which so easily entangles you, that you can fix your eyes on Christ, and that you can run the race of faithful living with endurance. Earlier, the writer to Hebrews says, don't give up on meeting together. The idea that in our togetherness, in our community, we make space for the gospel to be known and processed. For the spirit to move in power. And for us to hear his testimony. So have heroes of the faith. Read stories from the Bible and engage with each other's stories and be spurred. On. If you're not involved in a community group, can I encourage you to do it? This is why we have community groups for this to happen. Victory is indeed possible, but we must cooperate with the work of the Spirit to experience it. And we cooperate not by some religious effort, but in fact, by stepping aside and creating space for the Spirit to move in power and for us to be affirmed in the Spirit's testimony over us. 
And as this happens, our love for God increases and our identity in the gospel is cemented and our life is transformed. Can I pray with you?